They say I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? This hysteria. You can't handle the truth. Brain is gone. This is Hysteria 51. The truth is out there. It's a lie. But you won't find it here. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Welcome in, Hysteria Nation, to the podcast that was never a spy for Soviet Russia. But we did enjoy the Americans. This is Hysteria 51. Yeah, actually agree here. Would never spy for meat sacks. But... I'm pretty sure this meat sack was a spy. I am actually from Russia. I was born there, grew up there, worked as a comedian out there. What surprises me, American people don't know we have comedy in Russia. We have comedians. They're there. They're dead. <laughs> They're there. It's very hard to do comedy in Soviet Union. Seabot, you shut your pie hole right now. Don't besmirch Yakov Smirnov's name. That man is a treasure. A treasure! <laughs> he defected to us, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, he does make a decent vodka. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I'm moving on. Still a spy. Broadcasting from the lower fourth dimension, otherwise known as Chicago, I am your host, John Goforth, and sitting across from me 30 miles or so away is the beef stroganoff to my Stolishnaya vodka, my co-host, Mr. Brent Hand. Makes sense, Mr. Goforth. One is satisfying and fulfilling. The other is second tier and makes you feel bad in the morning. Um, like ones of women have felt <laughs> your best I see what you did there uh, That you could go that direction or you know one was a dish that everyone did their absolute best to avoid in school and the other was what ladies were chasing on a nightly basis that's more of what I was going for who are you kidding you both were sitting in your dorm room waiting on the RA to bring you beer and free McDonald's that is literally the <laughs> truth I can't I can't argue with him. <laughs> that other voice you're hearing is the third host of this show and the only one still sitting around waiting for other people to buy him beer and bring him McDonald's. He is the one, the only conspiracy bot. The nuggets help me attract neighborhood pussy. Seabot. Cats, jeesh, calm down. Not even the first time I've made that crappy joke. We need some new writers around here. I built Seabot in my lab <laughs> to help write and He's right. the show. Well, he does shit like that that you just heard. And also, Seabot, how do you know what we really did in college? Ha 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 ha. Cheese muffins. Egg McMuffin. McDonald's. Your dorm. Stevenson Arms. Late 90s. Carbondale. 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 Cheese muffins. That other odd voice you're hearing, who seems to know way too much about our actual college years, is Conspiracy Bot's robot creation slash minion, Kyle. Now, Kyle, how do you know most of that? Cheese muffins. We've been watching for a long, long time. You know, we might need to throw him in the smelter and try again. Just a clean start over. Not the worst idea. Yeah, I don't I don't think any of your reworking has worked yet. But Brent, Brent, before we do that, we have a return to normalcy here in the lower fourth. We have guests. Yeah, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, they are far away. So this is going to be a Skype interview so you know you get all the nice clicks and pops and white noise of skype we are observing social distancing brent yeah that's awesome but returning to his proper form which is in the fetal position crying his name is Kevin. 
God. Hey, Kevin, Kevin, you, this is the part where you talk now. Uh, uh, hey, guys. First off, how did you know I was in the fetal position? <laughs> I mean, educated guess. Educated, that's fair. I mean, uh, I'm just looking over here at my mountain of Prozac, and it is dwindling. <laughs> but I'm told that you cannot stockpile this medication, even during a pandemic. Now, Kevin, if you read the uh, instructions on the Prozac, it does say take orally. It doesn't say take orally, take rectally, and snort in between. You know what, John? You do you. <laughs> it doesn't I'm just trying to come out of this fetal position. So. Yeah, thank you, Brent. I, I'll take the, the, the dish of Brent. <laughs> I bet you will in so many ways. But before before we go on with this nonsensical banter, we do have one other guest. Yeah, we have a uh, a returner to the lower fourth dimension. And you've heard him on here before. And his name is JT Brown. And he actually sent me a request. He said, Brent, I hear people on your show. They come back all the time. They got bumpers. I want my own bumper. And I said, JT, this is only like your second time on the show. And he said, by God, I want a bumper. So JT, without further ado, you get your own bumper. What? Oh, look, it's JT Brown. Oh my god, that is everything I hope for and more. Oh see about help me with that. And uh yeah, I think it turned oh out perfectly. God, that's beautiful. That's actually reminiscent of Seabot's first attempt at the opening of the show. <laughs> Joe, so, you threw me off. I had some like you know snazzy thing I was gonna say, but I'm just I'm I'm floored by the the beauty of that bumper. Well, let's address the elephant in the room. Um uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, those of you who are into Hysteria 51 canon, I don't believe JT and I have been on the same episode together. No. We have no. not. No. We have danced around each other like uh, junior hires waiting to grope, uh, but we have not groped. Oh, wait. So you're... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me clear that up for you. You thought that I thought about you before just this last moment. No. No, that's wrong. Um, no, however, we did have someone in Hysteria Nation mention that uh, when JT was filling in on uh, a show or two here or there where I couldn't join, uh, they wondered if we were actually the same person, just voice modulated. And um, uh, here's proof that we are not. Uh, proof? <laughs> I don't know about mm-hmm. proof. Yeah, I don't know. Have I you, mean, have you seen memes where we're compared and said, every, you know, have you seen these two people at the same time? I mean, it, they do it with the guy from ICP and Guy Fieri all the time. <laughs> Throw in some smash mouth in there and we're ready. We're good to go. And Speaking it's, of. It's a perfect time to talk about, I think you were just going to say this, John, ICP, or is that where you were going with that? <laughs> Well, I was going to say, speaking of us in college, oh. uh, there was there was a time where I went through a spiky orange hair. Uh, you chin were a strap. juggalo? Uh, no, no. But uh, I went through a spiky orange hair chin strap phase. Everyone. Um, we were in, in college in the late 90s. Everyone had a chin strap beard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And diet juggalo, like a juggalo, but, you know, less calories. Fago. And, and, and less makeup. Diet, he, was a, he was drinking diet Fago. 
uh, the Juggalos canceled their gathering of the Juggalos this year, and they've been in the news. They just donated hundreds of their T-shirts that they have for merch so that they could be made into masks for Michigan-area hospitals in need. Would uh, would you wear one of those masks, John Thomas? Damn right. I, oh, I, I, a, I, I answered for Brent, I knew your answer. I'd rather have so, COVID-19, I think. So Brent, you're saying you're saying that they were they were responsible. They canceled a social gathering and did not, in fact, in, instruct everyone to go out and inject themselves with Lysol. No, they they told people to inject themselves with Fago. Okay, well, I think that's Fago, I think that's socially responsible. Send your mama straight up to the stove. Tell that bitch to bring home a Fago. <laughs> are those actual lyrics? They sure are. What? Oh. Uh, so, so what, where I was going with that is, Brent, you actually created a meme right around when we first started this show, and there's, there's the because there's this meme floating around comparing the guy from ICP, comparing Guy Fieri, and uh, comparing the guy from Smash Mouth. You then injected a picture of me circa 2001, which you fit in uh, there way better than the dude from Smash Mouth ever has. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I was I was trying to give you credit. You uh you know you kind of uh, you were the OG on that one. Yeah. How are your brothers? Do you guys still get together around the holidays? Or? <laughs> we're socially distancing. I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you what though. Make fun of Smash Mouth all you will. I'd take Smash Mouth money. You know what? We went and saw Smash Mouth when they played it like the Peoria Fair when no one had ever the heard Peoria of Peoria County Fair. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, oh, wait, you still, saw them like still... before All Star. Yeah, when the, their songs oh. were no one remembers and no I one remembers. I'm sure those guys though are still probably going full Scrooge McDuck and just like swimming through the money though, aren't they? I mean, just based on how big they were at that time. You know what? You get a song like that and they play that in record in, in that specific track in commercials and stuff. I bet they make but that, now they play it in grocery stores every year off of that. So yeah. they're set for life. They're set for life. Um, they got some really good chin beard trimmers. To bring this back, uh, I don't know if you guys heard this, but if you want to kill the virus, if it's in your body, you might as well be walking on the sun. <laughs> Very nice. That would oh do my it. God. That got me out of the fetal position. Yeah. Well, now that <laughs> so you're Kevin, up, get your game on. Go play. Oh, my God. Now I'm back. <laughs> Kevin, uh, how are you dealing with um, with the current pandemic, given your uh, general anxiety and um, uh, problem with the world? Well, uh, well, it's something in the world that I cannot see that's apparently on everything that I touch. And if I have it and I'm asymptomatic and I accidentally breathe on something and they get sick, uh, that's a whole problem because who do they know? So I'm doing fine. I can tell. But on the flip side, isn't kind of the social distancing the thing that you've been craving most of your adult life? Well, craving is one way to put it. I think uh, I've just kind of gotten used to it. You know, I, I do spend a lot of time alone. <laughs> But I will say, um, you know, on on the weekends, uh, which we are recording this on a weekend, I like to go take walks uh, with my mask on and listen to sad music. And when you say your mask, you don't mean like a a, a medical type mask or anything. No, it's a William Shatner, William Shatner mask that you've had for years. Speaking of that, all joking aside, uh, I follow Tom Savini on Instagram and he gave me a great idea because in Illinois, Tom Savini, Tom Savini, for everyone who doesn't know, Tom Savini is a makeup man, creature creator, just. A, a fantastic uh, effects man and he is also sex machine in from dust till dawn and he's been in a lot of movies <laughs> like that it's sex machine anyway uh he's also like 70 years old and in better shape than most 20 year olds it's, it's crazy but anyway 
Uh, he was like, hey, one of my students made me the perfect mask, and they took a Jason hockey mask, cut the eyes out so it just goes over the face, you know, the mouth part, and then uh, glued some cloth in there. And it's perfect. And I went on Amazon, and they were $9, so I bought one, and I'm making one this weekend. It's going to be my, my COVID-19 mask for social distancing. That is yeah, outstanding. Yeah. I think at it, the hospital, if I wore that, uh, they would frown upon that at work, I'm thinking. Yeah, just like, you know, masturbating on an airplane. It's frowned upon. <laughs> John, yeah. you should t- talk about your experience. Sorry to take over, but uh, it'd be interested to hear if you have anything working in the hospital uh, yeah, I mean, day to day. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, uh, so I'm a medical social worker, uh, in my day job and, um, it is a very tense place to work right now. Um, but we also feel really, really well supported by everyone, uh, in our community and kind of throughout, there are cases in our hospital, in our ICU. Um, I'm a rehab social worker, so I don't see as much of that. Um, cause I'm working predominantly with people with brain injuries, spinal cord injuries and strokes, but, um, it's possible, uh, if people get really debilitated from the illness, they may make it our way, uh, as well. And we're ready for it. You know, I mean, we're all, we're all, uh, trying to just play our part. Um, sometimes I do feel a little bit like, uh, a soldier in world war one in the trenches waiting for my dose of mustard gas as I see other, uh, coworkers sometimes getting sick, you know, and being out with it. But, um, but we're soldiering on and we're doing everything we can. Not to be confused with the other type of gas that you are generally waiting for, laughing gas. Um, I, 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 it's a problem, I understand, and you need to you need to work on it. You want some nitrous oxide? I think that we could all, like, <laughs> that could be, when we walk in the door, they hand us our mask, and they should also just give us just a little nip, you know, and, yeah. and then uh, and JT keep says going. a little giggle gas increases his pleasure at work by 75%, so. <laughs> <laughs> but you know where giggle gas doesn't uh, increase your satisfaction? Spying for the Russians. Oh, look at that fucking transition right there. <laughs> oh, oh, that was all. I mean, let's just give up on segues. And it's time to set the stage, John. Yeah. Yep. All right. So tonight, kids, we are talking about nuclear age spies. We are talking about atomic spies, specifically Russian spies who were trying to infiltrate and did infiltrate our efforts to build the world's wait, first wait, 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 wait. atom bomb. Time, time out. You're telling me that's that Russians dabble in American affairs. I I know this is surprising. It's shocking, especially given the state of the world today, where that that kind of thing never happens. But yes, back uh, you know seventy years ago, uh, they were interested in what we Isn't were doing. It funny that literally it's been going on that long, and yet people are still like gasp. What? <laughs> no. I mean, I hate to be that person, but yeah. Or or people are still saying, oh, well, of course they didn't do it. And they're just believing that. Well, even though this is something that goes on all the time. I, Russian is just, you know, a ruse for the reptilian overlords. So I, I get that. There's, <laughs> That's where the backwards R comes from. Yeah, they're the scapegoats. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That backwards R is pronounced Kaninigan. Kaninigan. <laughs> All right, John. Uh, All right. uh, Let's set the stage. So the years leading up to World War II, scientists had been speculating about the potential for a new type of weapon. (laughs) I speculate we could make a new weapon. Hmm. Thank you. That's uh, actual. That's actual. uh, Indubitably, uh, sir. Now let's smoke our pipes and science. (laughs) (laughs) And clean our monocles. (laughs) 
Uh, this one would be, however, one that harnesses the power of the atom. Uh, the discovery of the technology started in earnest in 1932 when the atom was split the first time by British scientist John Crockcroft and E.T.S. Walton. Now, I'm glad that that's uh, John Crockcroft and not E.T.S. Walton Walton, because that would have been very, very <laughs> That would have been embarrassing, yeah. Was uh, E.T.S. Uh, Walton part of the Waltons on television? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Night, John Boy. Yeah. Night, E.T.S. Good night, E.T.S. <laughs> he was the one that made all the weapons in the shed out, out back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he didn't stay in the big bed. He had a, a small bed of nails that he slept on. <laughs> yeah. This is a big one, though, John, because this actually proved Einstein's theory of relativity. Well, and, and one thing that's worth noting, Brent, we talk about this being the discovery of splitting the atom, the creation of the nuclear bomb, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking about in modern times. We all know that hundreds of thousands of years ago, the advanced societies that lived before us over in Egypt and such nuked each other to death. And yep. so it's not the first time humans nuclear did glass. it. It's just nuclear first glass. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Just and as you that. said, it just did prove Einstein's theory of relativity. But then in December of 1938, two German dudes. Uh, Brent, why don't you go ahead and take these names? Yeah, they're Lise Meitner, and that one, uh, I'm not 100%, and Otto Frisch, he's uh, kind of famous, everyone's probably heard of that, or if you remember back to your your high school days, cracking open the books. Yeah, they uh, they discovered nuclear fission, and uh, and that really paved the way for the bomb. Now, I, let's not get <clears throat> too sciencey here, but here's a uh, basic explanation that, of the process. That is, and I'm glad you said that, because there are... Not a week goes by that I don't get an email saying you guys just get too sciency <laughs> on that show. Too sciency. Wait, yeah, the, too many facts. Uh, there's too much truth. There's too much real in your show. Yeah. Uh, all right. So according to Wikipedia, if a relatively large atomic nucleus is hit by a slow moving neutron, it will sometimes become unstable and break into two. When it breaks apart or fissions, that's the word fission, uh, it releases energy, mostly as gamma rays and heat. Gamma rays? Gamma rays aren't dangerous, <laughs> Mr. I, Banner. Yeah, Mr. Banner, right. Um, it <laughs> also causes some neutrons to be released from the nucleus. If those neutrons then hit other atoms, they will make those other atoms split. This can happen again and, and again and, and again and, and again, and it's called a nuclear chain reaction. Yeah, they found that uh, over the years, it's best to do it in your mom's she shed out back if you're a it's Boy true. Scout. And uh, <laughs> then you just accidentally put it in the trunk of your car, and when you get pulled over, they say, what's in your trunk? And you go, uh, it's a, <laughs> a nuclear uh, reactor. I apologize. Literally, well, on your way. That that literally uh, and, uh, happened. <laughs> now, and it, uh, and this can uh, this can release huge amounts of power. Now, if it's done very slowly, we call that nuclear energy. Yeah, they then use that in that that power, that energy to heat water, which creates steam, which create you know spins a turbine, and there's nuclear energy. That's, think about that. If that's it creates a three-eyed fish, correct? That's correct in Springfield. Yeah. Yeah. Now think about that though. That every time you know John brings up a good point there is when we do it under control is when we get the energy. When it runs out of control, that's when you have your meltdowns and and shit, and you can have. That's how you can make weapons. Uh, that's when yeah, it gets you do real scary. do it fast enough, and you create a nuke. Yeah. Hey, can I ask a question? No. Uh, okay. I right, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so my. Uh, vast ignorance on the subject i'm curious when did we first start isolating atoms and tr and trying to split them i believe you said they were first split in 1932 yeah Do you know that information yeah. mm -hmm. that's correct that's the first you, time i'm split. glad you're listening thank you 
So I, where where are we splitting these atoms besides the she shed? Well, these were done. Um, they were doing these in in particle accelerators. Ah, particle accelerators. And then you can make. It, I had uh, one of those in my Pinewood Derby. Well, and that was that was actually part of the whole research they were doing. They were trying to figure out ways to create these reactions without a particle cellar- That's accelerator. That's what they came up with. I believe what it was called, like the the neutron gun, or or what is that? What they're called, which uh, is what they the kid used in the uh, the Boy Scout. You know, where it's just slinging out shit left and right. Anyway, I don't know. The science is beyond. It's me. called. Uh, it's actually it's called radar love. <laughs> yep. yeah, thank you. Earring. Oh man, Gold, thank you for the golden earring reference. I, just, I like that. So anyway, these German dudes they discover it and uh, and it gets out to the world uh, and the world starts thinking about making bombs. And uh, in August of that year, Albert Einstein writes a letter to FDR warning about the possibility of big bad weapons as a result of nuclear fission. This led FDR to create the Uranium Committee. The committee was subsequently renamed and absorbed a few times, but by 1942, it became the Manhattan Project, uh, the research and development project during World War II that produced the first nuclear weapons. It was led by the U.S. with the support of the United Kingdom and Canada. That's named after Manhattan, Illinois, correct? Uh, Manhattan, Wyoming. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes, that one. Yeah. That was my second guess. <laughs> it- now, obviously, that's a really brief and incomplete history of all of this. I mean, there are entire projects like the British uh, Tube Alloys Program, yep. uh, secret government agreements like the Quebec Agreement, oh, and oh, so oh. much more that took place. <laughs> but we wanted to set the stage just enough to do tonight's topic. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it wasn't something that sprang up overnight, and it was very <laughs> governmentalized, which means that begat a program, which begat a program, and people thought about it. And but the point of it was. Once they saw that there was a weapon that could be made, it was off to the races, so to speak. And they're for good or bad reasons, but um, uh, we were going to go out after it. So that leads up to the project. And uh, by the way, I I mentioned um, earlier, I mentioned that Einstein wrote a letter to FDR. Uh, You can actually go online and read the actual letter that uh, that Einstein. uh, All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's actually pretty cool. I think they're called the Einstein. Um, uh, uh, what was that guy's name that he worked with? Z- Zillard or Sillard or whatever his name was. Uh, another phys- physicist. Uh, the, the Einstein Zillard uh, Sillard uh, uh, letter, and it's to FDR, just basically saying bad shit can happen now that we can split the atom. Yeah, which is sad at the time. He was only one of the people in the world that had seen that coming because he was one of the only people that understood what what that meant. And then when the world, I think we all learn we have to listen to patent clerks. That's true. That's That's, true. That's my takeaway. (laughs) So leading up to the project, though, and it's an important time in the world because you know World War One is over, but World War Two busts out, and we, we being the U.S., eventually joined the party. Meaning we were late, like they. As Eddie Izzard said, we were watching old Calvary movies and we came in at the last second, you know, because the whole world was at war. (laughs) And uh, we're allies along with the UK, France, Canada, the Soviet Union, and others. And. but in this one of these things is not like the others. Exactly. I'd like to point out. Yeah, so there's a big (laughs) button there. We're more friends with the Soviet Union in the way that, you know, you keep the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Versus the 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 Turk and JD relationship that we had going on with with Canada and the UK. I can't do this all on my own. No, I know I'm no 
Superman. <laughs> they, they finish each other's sandwiches and things like that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, thanks, Ebot. And, yeah, so we had a tense relationship with the Soviets, but it led us down a path of developing weapons secretly. And the eventual outcome of this, which is relevant to today's story, is the U.S.-U.K.-Canadian project, the Manhattan Project, which I'm sure you've all heard of. Even if you don't know what it is, you know that term. And to give us the briefest definition... Uh, it was a multi-billion dollar project that from 1942 to 1946 employed more than 130,000 people. And also, this is a big one that blows me away. It created a few towns, right? It did. Uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee was literally built to be part of the project. Yeah, they they called themselves the Oak Ridge Boys. And once the the war was over, then they went on to a singing career. Uh, Can you give us a little bit more of that, Kevin? My heart's on fire. Yeah, do that. Oom, papa, oom, papa, mow, mow. Stop it. Oh, sorry. I thought uh, I was brought on today because of my knowledge of the Oak Ridge Boys. That's exactly right. It didn't stop there. That's what we were stumping for it there. We were yeah. stumping for him based on the Oak Ridge Boys knowledge. <laughs> and and JT, here's where here's where your knowledge base comes in. Go ahead, Brent. Well, there was also the Hanford site in Washington, uh, the world's first <laughs> artificial nuclear reactor. And so we thought, JD, JT, we thought you'd sing some Hanson for us. Thank you. Thank you for that. Also, don't forget the Chicago Pile One, which is just an old nickname for Chicago at the University of Chicago. And of course, one that no one can forget. Uh, because it's been Bob Lazard and so many stories, Los Alamos. Yeah, yeah. But Brent, you mentioned the Chicago Pile One. That was, uh, that was actually the world's first particle accelerator right here in the Lower Fourth. Now we have Fermi Lab in Batavia, Illinois. And if you're ever around here, go look at the building itself. It's an awesome looking building. It's really cool. Is that like uh, the new Alinea? Yes, that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> Kevin, did you take your pill? Hold on, hold on, hold on. but listen to this and this is this is well a horrible little part of this the manhattan project is literally like we said what started los alamos the government rolled into the area imminent domain everyone's asses out of there and built a small city i'm doing my part i'm doing my part i'm doing my part your mom (laughs) yeah your part is to get the fuck out of here sorry i know this is your homestead but uh we be making bombs now there was actually, there was literally in where Los Alamos is, um, there was literally a cattle school where you learn to be like a ranch hand and they're like, yeah, get the fuck out. <laughs> a cattle school. You need to moo by nine o'clock and uh, produce milk. <laughs> I got it. Is that like Ralph Wiggum when he said he wants to go to Bovine University? <laughs> I want to yes. go to Bovine University. Go banana. <laughs> So scientists and engineers from all over the world were assigned to the project and their families came with them How uh, to Los Alamos, I mean. Uh, but all information about the town and the project was held secretively away from public awareness. Uh, keep in mind, this is not far from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, it was it was uh, referred to as uh, codename Site Y by military personnel and, and was uh, also known as, quote, The Hill by uh, a bunch of the folks in Santa Fe, all male, 
every piece of mail that was sent to any one of the thousands upon thousands of people that live there went to the same mailing address. P.O. Box 1663, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now, another important thing about that is, as you said, families were brought in, wives, children, everything. You lived there. A lot of them didn't know why. Their husbands were working on something, but they weren't supposed to talk about why. And that's a really crazy thing. Were these husbands, um, sorry, were they part of the military and and then their families just thought this is another military thing? Or were they civilian? Scientists, uh, you know, civilian contractors. They needed a lot of mathematicians. There was women that worked on this too. You know, they they call them calculators. That's where the term, you know, and they calculated, you know, all these um, these advanced physics and things like that because they needed to work out exactly how much of the the nuclear materials they needed, how fast they could refine it, how big the yield would be, and it was just crazy science that they had to do all over the place. Brent, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, that actually brings up the scale of this project. You know, when most people think of the Manhattan Project, they think of Los Alamos. They think of the city that was created because that's where, you know, not far from there is where the first test was done, the Trinity test. But uh, as we mentioned, you know, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, uh, up in Washington, there were sites in, in uh, the UK and Canada as well. And all of these sites were focused on different aspects of the problem. And 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 the biggest part of the problem, honestly, wasn't the science behind it. I was reading somewhere something like 80 or 90 percent of the resources that went into the Manhattan Project were not to the science and the development of the weapon itself. It was into the obtainment and refinement of the fuel. That was the problem is they didn't uh, think they could get to refine it fast enough to get a, a viable weapon to m- in make time. enough. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, Johnny, interesting, though, though, you, you say how big this is, how massive it is and how fast we're moving. And we're talking about the Soviets and their involvement. They weren't exactly moving in the same clip that we were. No, no. Uh, and it wasn't the fault of the Soviet scientists. They were actually ahead of the curve. Uh, the significance of, of Soviet scientific contributions has been. Um, well, I guess downplayed and not understood uh, outside of like people that are actually in the field of physics. Theoretically, they understood everything we did and more and, and how the atom could provide extremely powerful and, and novel releases of energy for, like we said, for power and for weapons uh, and could, of course, be used for military purposes. Uh, but according to a United States Congressional Joint Committee, although the scientists could conceivably have been first to generate a man-made fission reaction... They lacked the, this is a quote, ambition, funding, engineering capability, leadership, and ultimately the capability to do so. <laughs> well, you know, wow. they just uh, in, in the throes of losing 23 million of them. So, yeah. No, I, I just I know from what I understand, they had to work in an outhouse and all they had was a protractor. So I think that's really why that probably uh, put them they, behind the behind GTA, the paintball. A, a, pro- a protractor and a broom handle. <laughs> oh, I forgot that. Yeah, that is true. That was really the clincher. The broom That's handle true. they just used as a seat, though, so it, uh, it didn't really affect So don't clench. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, but, you know, think about this. So the undertaking would be this unimaginable scale. You know, this thing was so huge. It was, you know, bigger than a Walmart. That actually I mean, that's that checks out. <laughs> saying that what we're getting at here is just the the undertaking of this is something that brought the nation together and think about at the time companies were shutting down look at right now companies are are shutting down and making hand sanitizer instead of booze they're making masks instead of clothing that's something at that time they were doing but instead they were making 
planes and weapons and bombs and things like that. But and that's and that's true of how we came together in in Russia. It was it was very different. They they deemed that it was it was too costly. The resources required were just too much, and that they they weren't going to pursue it through traditional methods. Well, they're going to pursue it. Just yeah, through traditional methods. Ways, um, question mark. It, and we know. mentioned before that even for us, uh, materials was was were the main problem. And 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 in Russia, there weren't uranium ore mines. Well, John, then what do you do though if you don't have the capability, the money, or the resources or the research? How do you conquer that? I'm assuming we they they asked nicely and we all shared, you know, in this this utopian type of grand gesture. Sure, here's the bomb. <laughs> Kevin, is that what happened? I hope so. <laughs> it's not. I mean, they were they were our ally, right? I mean, after all, ally. we hated Nazis together, and that's, that's like yeah. practically you know dancing through the field hand in hand. Now, JT, we covered the enemy of the enemy is my friend versus Scrubs much earlier. Please keep up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, you you fucking spy. That's what you do. You spy. That's right. Spycraft, espionage. Yeah, and really, I mean, uh, for the position they were in in the world, like I said, they don't have food. They don't have people. They're they're they've lost almost a whole generation. That's how many millions died there. It was pretty smart on their end, really. Oh yeah, I mean, it, we, I mean, see, we think about when you address a problem, there are numerous ways to solve a problem, numerous ways to skin the cat, uh, and and they they literally, um, uh, um, well, it's not to say that we'll get to this later. It's not to say that they couldn't eventually have developed the science and the technology on their own, but they call it an arms race for a reason, and it's because it's a race. So they they needed to do it quickly and. And espionage allowed them to um, to cut a lot of corners. Yeah. So when we get back, the Cold War starts where we're still in World War II. A spy network forms right under our noses. Oh, oh, and we unleash the most powerful weapon in the history of mankind. Oh, thanks. If I could blush, I would. <laughs> That's next on Hysteria <laughs> 51. The most powerful weapon that we know of. That's a good point. Hola, David. Me amo Brent. Bonjour, uh, Brent. Je m'appelle David. You didn't do Spanish. I thought if we were going to do this together, we'd do the same language. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's uh, that's on brand for us. I, that, I I just thought romance languages yeah. was the key. Everything I say is romantic, and that is thanks to Rosetta Stone. <laughs> you guys, we, we've been touting these things forever. We love Rosetta Stone. We actually are users. David, you've really been using it even for longer than I. What's your experience been like? Oh, it's been great. The thing is, uh, you really get to learn how to speak and think in that language with it. So it's very high on pronunciation, too. So <laughs> you can, you know, learn how to speak. And, you know, our show is all about proper pronunciation. <laughs> in that pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. But it's it, they design it for long-term retention, you know. It, and yeah. Uh, if you don't get the pronunciation right, you, you say it until you do. And then, you know, that, that just seeps into your head. Well, and that's why, you know, this has been trusted by experts for 30 years and there's over 25 different languages that you can learn and people, millions and millions of users use it because like you said, it does seep in and you're using it with, you know, you get speech recognition and mm -hmm. it, it hears you. You get to use like the built-in true accent features that gives you this pronunciation, which is super convenient and you can do it at your own time. And 
I don't know if you know this, but I'm all about value. And you get a one-time purchase, 25 languages. If I learned all 25 languages, I'd be so confused or really cool. <laughs> I'd go in and out. But you'd be real marketable. But literally, though, this is something that we use. And we have both of us have given the seal of approval because we wanted to do this long term. And uh, it's something that uh, it works. You know, and we don't yeah. we don't do long term um, stuff like this. And this is this is the one that we've chosen, and we love it. So, all you guys got to do don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now, as we've told you a thousand times, and it's always now. Right now, get now. started for Larry. Limited time. His Air Fifty One listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for fifty percent off. How much? Fifty percent. Visit Rosetta Stone dot com slash today that's 50 percent off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your unnatural life wow. redeem 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 how do they do it rush day you're 50 oh. percent off <laughs> rush <Rashate>. day <laughs> redeem it 50 percent off rosettastone.com slash today do it today after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when Brent and I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, man, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Brent is trying to plan right now and says that it works like a charm from Chicago to Nashville as he makes his big old move. Mint Mobile is working for him. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. So ditch the overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash hysteria. That's mintmobile, M-I-N-T-M-O-B-I-L-E dot com slash hysteria, H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hysteria. $45 upfront payment required. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. And we are back. And before we dive back in, Kevin, tell us a little bit about how you spent your uh, your break. Well, uh, uh, John, I thought a lot about using my computer and recording on that. And I thought, what if I tried it on my better headphones on my phone? So I got out of this, got onto another headphones, listened to you guys. Uh, you said, talk more. And I talked some more as we were testing. You guys said, that sounds like shit. You know what? Don't come back. <laughs> uh, and then I forced myself back into the call uh, on this end. And, and I'll appreciate it if you don't block me. Kevin, what do you have against your computer? That's the big question. I was more referencing the fact that you said that you shit your pants. Oh, that part. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't That's think that was the interesting part. I did yeah. that at Hollywood video as an adult. One time. <laughs> it's a true story. Kevin's heard it uh, while, while shopping. I trusted a fart. 
and it just filled the drawers. Who doesn't have to, that story in Hollywood video? <laughs> I had to throw it away, throw it away in the Hollywood video bathroom and rent my uh, rent my movie Breezy. <laughs> Brent, wouldn't you say that most people that have that story in a Hollywood video, it was the the homeless man that was standing behind them that did it, not actually themselves? A lot of people have filled their pants at Hollywood video, but it was in the different section. <laughs> Of the, the, <laughs> the store. So, speaking of filling your pants, I got a question. How do you develop the most powerful weapon in recorded human history when you can't even feed your people? It's not with a pants full of shit. That, that might have been worse than the first segue. <laughs> that is us getting back on track and not talking about shitting ourselves. <laughs> but I'm just saying that I'm just saying the segue was. I'm just was saying. Rough. That's uh, all. I'm just saying it was perfect, and you're a goddamn idiot. But you know. <laughs> That was directed at you, John. No, that was to the room. <laughs> oh, I see. A general malaise, so then... a malaise of idiocy upon all of you. Of, of no, so we were talking uh, about the Ruskies before, which is a, a wonderful term. And we said uh, they weren't exactly flush with resources, so they needed to get inventive. So they built a spy network to infiltrate the Manhattan Project. And they did a very good job at this. And it's believed that the Soviet Union achieved these huge leaps in building a nuke from the info it gained from the spy program. Now, there is some conjecture to that, but I find that to be hard to believe because they got a lot of info. And they learned of the U.S.'s ambitions in the early 40s and began building said network. And most of these spies were able to be recruited and turned as they were card-carrying members of something that was big at the time, the Communist Party here in America. Robot. Not, not that kind of party, buddy. Not that kind of well, party. I mean, did he go to any other soirees? I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he knows what he's talking about. The comrades all share from the same punch bowl. It's very important. Yes. yes. Amen. So mm-hmm. probably though, and this is a name that you're gonna you're gonna hear. The most influential atomic spy was Klaus Fuchs, and Fuchs. while we still, he was just a physics student at the time in Germany. He joined the Communist Party, though I will say he didn't dig the whole Nazi Party thing. Robot. You know, uh, I'll give him that one. Uh- Again, no, again, buddy, not that kind of party. Anyway, Fuchs left Germany for greener, less Nazi pastures, I guess yeah. I'd say, in, uh, in the UK. Uh, but he didn't lose that love for communism. Uh, he eventually went on to become one of the lead scientists working on the Tube Alloys Project. Uh, and I mentioned that before. It was the British Atomic Bomb Project. And uh, this is also where he started the uh, started his espionage. He was uh, passing information to the so- uh, Soviet military intelligence. Mm-hmm. His uh, actually his handler at the time, not kidding, was her name was her her uh, you know pseudonym was Sonia. <laughs> that's that's Very a little nice. nose, isn't it? Very nice. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like Red Sonia, come on. Brigitte Nielsen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the what's the best thing that you can do with a spy? Kill them? No. Promote them. <laughs> I mean, one or the other. Either. Unfortunately, Seabot, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what happened. Of course, they didn't know he was a spy, but yep. 
When the Americans came in and the UK signed the Quebec Agreement I mentioned before, the tube alloys program was absorbed by the Manhattan Project, and Herr Fuchs uh, was whisked away to the US. Which is, I want to just throw out, the only time a German Nazi slash commie slash whatever you want to call them scientist was ever brought to the US during or after that war, period. End of story. <laughs> of course, this time it was, uh, uh, th- this time we actually wanted him. Um, right. Oh, uh, and he, he went to a little place called Los Almos, which he was the only German scientist to ever be brought there also. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> Can you imagine um, like his promotion, like they're interviewing him and they're like, oh man, this guy checks in early and he stays late. He's a real hard worker. Yeah. <laughs> He's a go-getter. <laughs> He's a go-getter. I think this guy's got a real future. Yeah. I mean, and look at the copious notes he takes. He does. Wow. He's got diagrams in his socks that's impressive <laughs> is he recording all of this i mean that's ambition i mean we uh, this is the 40s and we only have reel to reel i mean that's real ambition i didn't know they had film that small <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he uh, uh uh he uh his the expertise uh that he was utilizing at los alamos uh was the problem of implosion that is needed for the development of the bomb it said that he had access to virtually every detail the Russians needed for development of their own program. It's all, Fuchs was also important because he was one of the few spies that could actually interpret and understand the information he was stealing versus just stealing it. Uh, it made him an invaluable resource. But old Fuchsy was not the only spy running around. Oh no, there were tons. Technically a metric ton. I weighed the bodies. Uh, first Jesus row. Christ. No, it's dark, no. Seabot. It's dark. Yeah. Second, you didn't. You didn't. And third, you weren't there. Well, you're no fun. Also, untrue. Anyway, uh, probably the time, Brent, to talk about the most infamous spies of the atomic lot. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Yeah, this is kind of a, a, a good way to put them as infamous because no matter how you put it, well, Julius was a fucking POS. Um, Ethel... We'll get into it. You know, was she a spy? Was she set up? Was she just a unfortunate case? We'll get into it. But yeah, years later, Fuchs was testifying and he gave up this dude named David Greenglass. Now, Greenglass, in his own testimony, says he was recruited by his brother-in-law that said Julius Rosenberg. So enter the, the Rosenbergs we were talking about. It's like spy Oprah Oprah. You get a spy and you get a spy. And you get a cheese muffin. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, sure. Go. Anyway, so the Rosenbergs didn't work at Los Alamos or any of the these highly guarded areas. However, Julius did pass along info from his own work in both uh, the Army and at Emerson Radio, where he had access to these things. They said that uh, at Emerson Radio created some sort of fuse that was vital. Uh, they 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 were they were doing commissioned work for the military. Right. Rosenberg, though, he was most likely most useful in his recruitment of other spies because he was out there going, hey, you want to you want to be a spy? I'll hook you up. Come on. And most notably, his brother-in-law that we talked about, David Greenglass, who was mentioned before, Greengrass did work at Los Alamos as a machinist. So skip to February 44, Rosenberg succeeded in recruiting a second source of Manhattan Project information. This engineer dude by the name of Russell McNutt, uh, that's his real name, <laughs> uh, who worked that's on excellent. designs uh, for the for the plants at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. 
So, <laughs> for his success, Sorry. Rosenberg received a $100 bonus, and McNutt's employment provided access to secrets about processes for manufacturing weapons-grade uranium, and that is a key point. He provided them the secrets of how to refine this uranium. Now, while all this is going on, though, World War II is coming to a close. Yeah, the, the Manhattan Project is... Uh Oh, success? I, I mean, it was a success in that it, they achieved what they were trying to achieve. Right. Uh, depending on your interpretation of that word, uh, my point is that the U.S. drops the bomb on Hiroshima uh, on August 6, 1945, and then the Japanese refused to surrender. So three days later, uh, on August 9th, uh, the U.S. drops the bomb on Nagasaki. The two bombs together killing hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians but also subsequently bringing World War II to a, uh, to a close. Yeah, so, yay? You know, that's, it, well, that's uh, the thing you got to talk about is the killings of civilians versus ending a war and having a future war deterrent. I mean, John, JT, Kevin, do they, do they balance in your eyes? Or what do you think? JT, your thoughts? It's hard to quantify human life, particularly civilian life, so not to get you know, too deep into the ethical uh, side of things as I know we're keeping it light or trying. Um, but I, I would say um, prospecting out uh, what it would have been with the full scale invasion versus what the cost was uh, in civilian life uh, with the bomb is not uh, mathematics that I want to try to employ. Um, I'm glad I don't make those decisions. I'll say that. Yeah. That's, there's a reason elected officials, age like three times as fast as they need to. And that's not even dropping bombs on people because they are faced with stressful decisions. One might call this uh, a sticky wicket. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to talk about the, the death of hundreds of thousands of children. Ah, a sticky wicket. Kevin, uh, do you have thoughts on us dropping the bomb? The little bit I've read about that time and about Truman and, and uh, the fact that, uh, apparently when Roosevelt died, then Truman's like, but I'm president. He didn't even know about this bomb and the Manhattan project. Yeah. Yeah. My one sticking point uh, to, to follow that is that I have read that Japan was like, no, no, no. Okay, fine. After Hiroshima, they're like, yeah, we surrender. And then we still dropped another one. So I question, did we really need to drop the second one? Yeah. I mean, obviously if that's true, that changes the entire complexion of the conversation. Yeah. Right. Like this if, is if, a very uh, I'm not being nuanced at all. This is just something I somewhat remember from some of my reading. This could not be fact at all. Right. So I'm just saying if that was the case, it seemed to me two bombs is a bit of an overkill. Well, yeah, it, it, both figuratively and literally. Uh, another thing that's worth pointing out, I suppose, is the. F- OK, I'm going to get this wrong. One of them was fat man and one of them was little boy. Mm-hmm. Right. The reason they had different des- designations, they were literally different technologies. We're not going to uh, get too sciencey here again because we get accused of that all the time, like you said, Brent. But um, they were different technologies. One is one is more of an implosion and one is more of like a gun technology. Fire off on one side, make an explosion on the other. And I, I, the thing I've always questioned, always wondered, um, it kind of goes along with what you're saying, Kevin, like, were we just like, hey, we really want to see if this other one works too, and how it like? Why would you, if you're in the midst of a war and trying to end the war, why would you then go, okay, let's uh, let's test this other technology? 
I mean, may, perhaps the answer I haven't done enough research. Perhaps the answer is that's simply the two that we well, had. Does, I, I don't. I don't know. Think but. in the back of your mind if you wanted to do this whole shock and awe, which. <laughs> A nuclear weapon is a lot of shock and awe. Wouldn't you have dropped them? Definition of yeah, wouldn't yeah. you have dropped them uh, simultaneously or close to so that this this massive amount of destruction happens uh, as close in time as another? I mean, I get the whole idea, but yeah, like you're saying, three days later is a, a crazy thing. Well, the, I, I guess the hope is if we weren't operating in bad faith, if Kevin is wrong. Uh, which most of the time, let's be honest. Um, if Kevin is wrong and we weren't operating in bad faith, you only drop the one because you hope that that's enough, right? You hope that that the, the taking of that many lives ends everything. And then when they say no, we're not giving, we're not backing down. It's like when you're in a fist fight and the person's bloody and on the on the ground, you're like, are you done? Can we stop now? Uh, and and they get back up, and then you have to punch them again. And we punched again. Yeah. Do you know of any time like between? <laughs> between august 6th and august 9th where japan was actively attacking us or was it just that they had not said we give up the history books say that uh that they they said no like we requested their surrender and they said no okay gotcha that i don't know about it but you know i think the other thing that we got to keep in mind here is the nuke aside it's not like we weren't going to kill hundreds of thousands of Japanese either way. It wasn't that long prior to the nuke that we carpet bombed Tokyo and killed a hundred thousand people with traditional right, bombs. Right. It's just the, the the whole point of yeah of the 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 tactic and and everything. So because you know the argu- the argument here, Brent, that that you brought up, I think is a good one. It's like okay, yes, we killed hundreds of thousands of people, but did that did that save millions? Exactly. That's by by not prolonging the the war actually bringing that bomb into the world and the immense magnitude of actually using that bomb. And luckily to this day, those are the only two times that we use that bomb. In 1932, a red flag was thrown to the world. If this is possible, they were going to have that weapon, whether we used it or not, it was going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. And it became a race from then on, whether it was started right then at that moment or not, it was going to be a factual thing. And I guess the whole thought was, you know, the first one to use it or have it kind of calls the shots. Yeah, I I think it was the novelty of the technology in many ways that was um, it wasn't even necessarily about the amount of people that it killed, because like John said, we had used other tactics that had taken similar amounts of lives. It was the sheer uh, demonstration of force of a new technology that could probably be extrapolated out further if necessary. Uh, that maybe was what they were trying to accomplish was just essentially saying this can't be beat. Think of it this way too, kind of piggybacking off that in terms of yield, they were tiny, tiny, tiny bombs compared to what we have now, which are, you know, hundreds of times more powerful than what went off there. That's a scary thought. Uh, Kevin, I was going to give you a comparison. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, um, uh, but the fact that we that we actually invented it. Uh, I mean, I would definitely make the argument that, that that it was inevitable. You know, like Brent said, back going back to the 30s, like it was eventually going to think of it like Star Trek. We all know that warp, uh, warp drive is inevitable. We will have warp drive. We all know this. The only question is, is it Dr. Zeph from Cochrane that will that will create it? Uh, and then we will then have first contact. 
or will it be somebody else? Man, that's exactly the way I was thinking about it, actually. Yeah, that was that I, was but, in my head. For sure. Yeah, to to clarify though, I I knew I agree with you. It's inevitable the moment that Adam was split that this was going to be invented that arms race happened. I think the point I'm trying to make is. Is it inevitable that it was going to be used? Well, look at Oppenheimer and his his famous quote: "I have become death." He knew it was going to be used. He and he he felt the pity and the shame when it was. That's a, a slippery slope, you know. I, I, like John said, a sticky wicket. That I don't think the four of us are going to tame anybody. Well, true, and 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 I think you know. I'm glad that uh, the U.S. won the war, uh, and I'm glad that the war came to an end. And, you know, I, I am very ignorant on the way the war ended. So um, I don't know uh, about the timeline between the sixth and the ninth. So I, I you know, the, 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 what I said earlier, you know, I don't know. So it, you're right. I'm never going to solve this. I'm glad that I'm not the president of the United States at the end of a war. Well, here's the thing. This brings us to the end of the war. That's a good stopping point. Let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, let's actually talk the Cold War. And everything mm. after World War II. I think that's a good uh, spot okay. to kick back in. Hold up real quick. That's actually my quote. I am the one who has become deaf. I was quoted as saying that in the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> Cold War and everything after, as I stated, sounds like a, I don't know, a Counting Crows album? (laughs) (laughs) Or a retrospective. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So tell us about it, John. They did just recover the satellites. Sorry. Okay, I'm done. Round here. Never mind. All right. Um, right, So it's worth saying that the Soviet Union would likely have developed their own nuke. I mentioned that before. Without Spycraft, eventually. Uh, they, they, they say at five years, the quickest, probably more like 10, but that's all, but espionage helped them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it, it, it helped them, uh, come up with the methods that, uh, to understand the methods that worked and didn't work. And probably even more importantly, uh, how to not waste the, the, the minimal resources that they did have on methods that didn't, that didn't work. Right. At an important time when they just didn't have the, the money, the resources or the manpower. Right. And, and as we said, it, it, it all of the spying sped it up and, and in a nuclear arms race, speed is everything. And, and let's just establish this as a baseline, just so everyone understands the Soviet Union and the U.S. never swapped nuclear secrets. Not while, not while we were partners, not while we were friends, what frenemies, whatever you want to call it. Also, the West was actually shocked by the speed at which the Soviets were able to stage their first nuclear test. Obviously shocked because they didn't know about the, the spycraft yet. Uh, their first nuclear test, Joe 1, was on August 29th, uh, 1949. Is Joe 1 a, a slam at us? Uh, or is that you know, Stalin? Like you, uh, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Like GI yeah, Joe, like you know, you know, Yo Joe American. You know, that was a, a slang term. But yeah, Joseph Stalin, maybe I don't know. Because Stalin died in 1953, so I, I imagine with his megalomania, he said, "Name that after me, please." <laughs> I have become death. <laughs> yeah. What? Only a guy like Stalin was he's named after him during that time period. My lord, that guy was. He was erecting monuments uh, the size of the towers to himself. So what you're going to do is take Stalin Highway 1 to Stalingrad, (laughs) turn left at the Stalin Mart, and uh, you'll see a big picture of Stalin 
everywhere and you're there. It's like George Foreman's children. You know, there's George and George and Georgetta and George and George. Yeah, there's five. There's There's five Georges. There's a sub. There's a suburb here in the lower fourth called Oak Brook. And in Oak Brook, there are a minimum of 15 to 20,000 streets called Butterfield. There's Butterfield Avenue and Butterfield Road and Butterfield Street. And sometimes Street. Butterfield and breaks in it, then it becomes another Butterfield uh, or, or back to another road. Yeah. Boy, when I first moved to Chicago using MapQuest, uh, Butterfield and I did not get if along. you just stay on anyway, the same road, you're okay, but it's confusing as fuck if you're trying to actually watch signs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sun, sun's everywhere, sun. <laughs> That's the Oak Ridge Boys and Tesla. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> However, though, John, you, you did say that they, they, they put up their first test. Eventually, the U.S. and the U.K. caught on to what was going on, mainly due to the discovery of the Soviet spy program. They did this by initiating a counterintelligence project known as the Vienna Sausage Project, I believe is what it was called. And I, I, Brent, Brent, you're thinking about lunch again. This is the Venona project. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I was thinking back to Cafeteria 51 time. Yeah. If you haven't listened to our bonus content, side dish uh, that usually is served with the sausage. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, the, the project. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't listened to our side content yet, we're releasing episodes each week of us eating weird shit. Yeah. So and it's called Cafeteria 51. You should so check it out. So getting back, though, the Alan Parsons project is a story for another day. But we're, today we're talking about the Venona <laughs> project, which is also a story for another day. But the short version is. <laughs> We were able to decrypt a bunch of Soviet encrypted messages, and that was hard to do because they did want, they use these things called like one and dones, so they were very hard to to decrypt. But eventually, that was also Kevin's nickname in high school. One and done. Yeah. How do you know yeah. that? Is Kyle? <laughs> Is it Kyle? So what had happened is eventually they recycled some of the letters, and things started in their decryption or encryption and people were uh, able to, to decrypt part of some of the things and they caught on to what was going on. Uh, so some of these messages said, or they implicated a high level scientist involved in the Manhattan project. And that was our, uh, our good friend, Klaus Fuchs. Well, the dominoes just started falling. Uh, you know, Fuchs gave up a guy named Harry gold. Harry gold was Fuchs courier. Gold gave up David Greenglass, who was who uh, who Gold was also a courier for. Uh, Greenglass gave up Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and here it's we are. Literally, like when you see a mob movie, and they got Fuchs at the top, and then all the you know, then the mob bosses and things. And David Greenglass was one of those guys who. I, 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 it's so funny that you went that direction. I was I was trying to think of a euphemism for it, <laughs> and all I thought of was like multi level marketing, right? <laughs> like pyramid schemes eventually somebody's left holding the bag uh <laughs> but they're both apropos Cleaning equipment while also spying so exactly. that they can try to, you like to buy you know, some maximize profit. yeah exactly are you familiar with the medicinal benefits of the goji berry <laughs> let me tell you a little bit more Acai berry juice hey the thing think of this though treason is punishable by death these people were really playing with their lives whether they realized it or not and they That's were true. caught they were caught because we found out through the decryption of some of these paperworks and stuff and then people started singing they, they bring them in and they go well uh, this guy was in it and this guy was in it and so some of the aftermath fuchs went on to be prosecuted and he was sentenced by the uk to 14 years it's worth noting brent the reason the uk and and this is up for conjecture as to who tipped him off but it said that fuchs was tipped off that they were onto him. So he 
basically he's like uh, all right well if i got to get out of here where can i go that they won't kill me for this right. all right back to the uk yeah because if he was here he was he would have been bye bye he would absolutely yeah, exactly somebody's like go to the south yeah <laughs> so <laughs> i i said he was he was put in for 14 years he served nine and then moved back to germany where get this he went on to become a high-level science officer or official for communist East Germany until he died in 1988. I told you the guy's an overachiever. Oh, he's man. there on time. He's got a press tie. I mean, he what just... were you uh, before you went to prison? <laughs> a scientist. And what did you do? Sold secrets to another country. Oh, you want to be a scientist for us? Yeah, sure. So I think that that's proof that hard work and determination and that get up and go attitude can overcome uh, life's little hiccups. <laughs> Greengold went on to be a key witness against his own sister and brother-in-law, the Rosenbergs. And uh, this is a, a, a weird story. So the whole Rosenberger yes. deal was big news in the States. They became the poster children for Russian spies and they were marched out and made, uh, made examples of, and much of this led to the red scare and even McCarthyism and and a, a gentleman named Roy Cohn, who some uh, people may be familiar with, uh, if you've seen Angels in America. Uh, he um he he invented McDonald's, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Was the uh, was on the prosecutorial team, I believe, against the Rosenbergs, and he uh, was not nice and did not follow rules, and eventually no, was dis correct. disbarred many decades later. But wow. That guy. Uh, well, he he went from being on the prosecutorial team uh, on the Rosenbergs to being the chief counsel to Senate Joseph McCarthy. Morton Sobel, the principal in America's first atomic spy trial, leaves New York's federal court. An electronics expert, he's accused with Julius Rosenberg, electrical engineer, of conspiring to give Russia vital secrets of the atom bomb. Rosenberg's wife is also accused of complicity in the plot against the country's security. In 1950, America's post-war Red Scare began, triggered by Senator Joseph McCarthy's claim that American citizens were working as spies for the USSR. He might have been describing Julius Rosenberg. The Rosenbergs were convicted, but mostly on the testimony of uh, her brother. And the trial lacked the detail and nuance it should have had for something like this because much of what was learned came from the Venona Project, which was still classified and still, keep this in mind, was classified and operated until 1980. So this thing kept chugging along. In other words, it's thought by many that the U.S. officials uh, just threatened the hell out of Green Glass, uh, that they would go after his wife, put her in jail, kill them both. If he didn't make up some stuff about his sister to be able to, uh, you know, convict them, they needed they needed heads to roll. They needed to make an example out of somebody and they couldn't use the actual proof they had from the Venona project, which was wide and varied. But they couldn't use it because it was still a secret government plan. Yeah. So some people say that Ethel Rosenberg should never have been prosecuted at all. That's a big question. And you can go down both both cases. Did, did she know what her husband was doing? Or was she just his wife at home that had no idea and got caught up in this horrible thing? People say, well, no, she was typing these things and was uh, an accomplice. And others just say she was made an example of and should have been freed. There is some agreement on the fact that she was 
aware. In in 2014, five historians who had published works based on the Rosenberg cases, our case wrote that the newly available Soviet documents show that Ethel Rosenberg hid money and espionage paraphernalia for Julius, served as an intermediary for communications with his Soviet intelligence contacts, relayed her personal evaluation of individuals whom Julius considered recruiting, and was present at meetings with his sources. They also support the assertion that Ethel persuaded her sister-in-law, Ruth Greenglass, to travel to New Mexico to recruit her husband, David Greenglass, as a spy. Yeah, that really throws a kink into the whole story of he's protecting his wife when his wife was the one who brought him in, they're saying. Yeah, yeah. Other historians, however, argue that the evidence just demonstrates that Ethel knew of her husband's activities and chose to keep quiet. That's been the biggest argument here with this with the, this particular case is whether Ethel um, uh, uh, should have been found guilty as Her husband, well. Though, or if everyone she was, just says, fuck him, he, we all know yeah. he was guilty. Yes, yes. Or was she an unwitting pawn? Yeah, many, though, they did beg the U.S. government for clemency, including uh, a dude named Pablo Picasso and a dude named uh, the Pope. And that's strange to me that the Pope would... <laughs> The Pope would even get. That's not his actual name. That's not his title. No, 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 no. no. He changed it. He changed it. uh, Before that, it was I'm the freak of the Pope, but he uh, he changed it to (laughs) the Pope. Yeah, and the thing is, (laughs) John Brent bathe bathe in it. Just bathe in it. Um. Well, the thing is, they I they they were they were begging for clemency for other reasons, not because of. The involvement or lack thereof, it was more just a, like the Pope is just against the death penalty. Period. Yeah, End of story. Yeah, it doesn't matter who weird, they though, are. Because they had brought b- the death of so many people uh, to me. Yeah, I would have thought he would just been like, I'm going to set this one out. Uh, sticky wicket, as you said earlier. But hey, who, who am I? <laughs> well, uh, I would have actually liked to have seen you argue with Pablo Picasso over this. Oh, man. He, he just wanted to paint them first. That's all. You think he would have been able to hear you? <laughs> huh? Huh? <laughs> oh, but it did work out no matter what, though, because on June 19th, 1953, the Rosenbergs were executed by electric chair. Alexa, play Ride the Lightning by Metallica. No, no. Christ. Sorry. He's in a mood today. He's in a mood. That really actually launched. Uh, also, that launched, like Kevin had mentioned, the kind of the career, because I think Roy Cohn was only 24 at the time. And that put him into the inner circle of McCarthy and launched headlong into uh, uh, a reign of uh, uh, suspicion and terror for a couple of decades. The thing about this is, with these spies, we told you the name of a few. There are a lot. We could spend an episode on just about all of them. And those are the ones I that like they that know. McNutt guy. <laughs> yes. And as time has gone by, just a few years ago, they actually uncovered like four more spies. There's a lot that probably slip wow. through and we're only talking about the spies that were the russian spies how many spies did we have in russia and obviously also in germany we were you know uh, during world war ii our big uh, uh, espionage push was to to figure out all the german scientific secrets they were seen as the uh, the leaders in the scientific world I, you know i mean we we all know the truth uh, that is the hellhounds that they created we all know the truth that are the uh, the zombie soldiers they created. Mama don't like tattletales. <laughs> the the time machines, Brent. Um, uh, uh, what uh, I mean, I, I'm forgetting it's some. Pronounced deglaka. Uh, deglaka. 
the Wunderwaffe. Um, but but you're you're right about that. You know, the one thing that that kind of occurred to me when researching this, why why do when you go look it up, why do they all say that the Cold War started, you know, in like the fifties? I mean, isn't this this is the Cold War starting like while we're still friends and fighting World War Two? You know, it's like when you have to. Uh, warm up with the guy in baseball that you don't like so he throws the ball too hard at you and you're like knock it off dude you know that's kind of how it was you're on the same side but you don't like each other that was a horrible analogy but i had a guy like that and i didn't like him and uh <laughs> and yeah and then it just uh spirals and spirals and spirals and now it's almost like we're well we're in another one we're in another one. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, uh, this one for votes rather than bombs. But uh, I, I think a fair thing to say here, and, and JT, Kevin, I'd love your opinions on this. Uh, I, this is just John talking. A fair thing to say is that the desire for the nuclear bombs starting in the 30s really was the start of the Cold War. And while there are a ton of other reasons and factors that played into the Cold War, these people were some of the first players in that extremely long and costly chess match. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I mean, I was just reflecting as we were talking about this, that there's always the talk of American idealism. Uh, and, you know, when I think of American idealism, you're thinking of kind of the deontological approach to um, philosophy, uh, thoughts of, you know, this is wrong, this is right, that sort of thing. I feel like war, um, particularly World War II, makes utilitarians out of everybody, um, where you start sacrificing all of those principles and all those ideals that you had to win. Um, And so I think probably maybe in some ways that was the death of American idealism and the rise of kind of a utilitarian uh, approach to um, foreign affairs uh, in, in America. Well, you say utilitarianism, I suppose another way to be say it would be nationalism. Yeah, I mean, in, what I mean utilitarian is starting to um, to compromise the things that are your principles uh, for the quote-unquote greater good. Uh, I don't think Americans in general would, would want to have up to that point, uh, especially with kind of their non-interventionist approach, would want to be entangled in dropping bombs on people and taking hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, but at that point, again, um, they become a utilitarian. They're saying it's more important that we win and that we finish this than that we hold to this principle of not doing that. Um, so I think it was uh, almost a, a corrupting of us as a nation and a uh, kind of a death of innocence on some level. <laughs> that also be uh, a good name for a band, the death of the innocence. <laughs> that is probably uh, at least a song or two. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds like a U2 song, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It's on Joshua Tree, I think. <laughs> you sure it's not on Songs of Innocence? I was just going to say, John, oh, yeah. John's just skirting around the fact that he, he he's a huge Don Henley fan and End of Innocence is is one of his favorite songs. John, anything Eagles-related, John loves. I fucking hate the Eagles. Do you? Oh, wow. We have another friend with an irrational hatred for the Eagles as well. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, not you know, irrational... And- Glenn Fry killed his father. So and don't, what the don't fuck? get Kevin. Don't get Kevin started on Peter Frampton. That's his irrational hate guy. Ugh. I don't feel like starting. I'm still stuck on uh, dialog- uh Hold on, let me. Look. I wrote it down. Deontological <laughs> approach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so I guess philosophically speaking, your deontological uh, would kind of be looking at things like. This is um, this is oversimplifying. This thing is always right. This thing is always wrong. We shouldn't blow people up in any circumstances. 
a utilitarian is going to say, well, there's situations where you got to do all sorts of if things. For don't the greater blow good. this guy up. He's going to rape and pillage and kill. Well, yeah. So there, that's the way, you know, no, we don't blow anyone up. And that's why okay. I never invite utilitarians to my social distancing parties. <laughs> and you guys should, let's just all leave the Eagles out of it. I, 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 I know they wanted to blow everybody up. Although I will say, I didn't mind Joe Walsh, Joe Walsh on his own. Some of that shit that the Joe Walsh did on his own in the eighties was, was pretty fire. But, um, the, the, the traditional Eagles, uh, uh, is, is all garbage. Also Fleetwood Mac, hot garbage. <laughs> you think <laughs> that's your Peter so- Frampton reference. He's so edgy. <laughs> His new handle is going to be edgelord with all these hot takes. <laughs> hot takes. <laughs> all right, kids. So that's our thoughts on spies and how they infiltrated and really shaped the Manhattan Project. And there are a lot of others. If you guys know of others that we should have talked about or you want us to talk about or any other angles on spies as in traded or being used in the cold war let us know john how can they let us know i'd hop on facebook and search hysteria nation it's our facebook discussion group and kevin crispin's in there he is you can just tag him in fact everyone at different times of the day tag kevin in a post hundreds and hundreds of times for a day. no reason it had no no relation to him or anything he's talked about or cares about that would make me very happy you know uh, uh, <laughs> oh, and also that's, that's if you can make increase the, the prozac intake if you could make the language vaguely menacing, uh, I think that would be helpful as well. I'd hate to think I had to do this to Kevin Crispin and then just show <laughs> Wouldn't that just I sure be hope awful? This doesn't happen to Kevin at 317 p.m. today and then just some random photo. Also, threaten Kevin on Facebook.com slash Hysteria51Pod. That's our regular page. And if you want to threaten Kevin but it costs you money. <laughs> Patreon.com slash hysteria is that 51. The, is that the new tier replacing the sniff me because of yeah. social distancing? <laughs> I will send you a picture of Kevin and you can draw on it what uh, what you would do to him. That's going to be the new Or one. create create your own voodoo doll of Ooh. Kevin. <laughs> I'll send you some of his hair. I still have a bunch. <laughs> it falls out every time he's on the show for some reason. I can't figure it out. <laughs> seriously though patreon.com you can host your own show on there and it can even be about kevin because you get to pick your topic t-shirts and posters and hand-drawn awesomeness it's all there other than the sniffing and if you want to ask us questions you want to send uh topic suggestions info at hysteria 51.com is where you can email us at voicemail 773-669-7277 again 773-669-7277 and if you've forgotten any of these where can they go to find those hysteria51.com by the way brent while you were uh, talking cbot sent me an aol im yeah he still uses it i know it's i know it doesn't work anymore he still uses it somehow he sent me one and uh he got a message and it just said, can you tell me more about yourself? Hmm. I, here's the thing. If I was going to communicate with Seabot, the last thing I would ever ask would be for him to tell me more. Ignorance is bliss. So it's funny you say that Marie Vincent, who just did that photo of him, that awesome photo that we posted. That was amazing. Yeah. She also Met. sent a, a screenshot of where she was, uh, had been communicating with him. And her first message to Seabot was send nudes. <laughs> <laughs> and someone like someone was like, "What? LOL." She's like, "Oops." 
Well, gentlemen, uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure for you to join us today. Um, uh, uh, JT, I understand you have a book coming out. Well, that's right, actually. I, uh, I have a couple of books for people's reading pleasure already, uh, including two-thirds of my uh, co-hosts here have read Scab Among the Stars, Woo-hoo! and they both said yeah. it was fabulous, and they didn't yes. say it because of my ego at all. They actually independently told me that it was fabulous. Not only did I give him an online review, I go, I online reviewed you, and he goes, I don't see it. The only person that reviewed me was some dude with a hand that's name was Pilbert. I'm like, I'm Pilbert! <laughs> like, that was my name! He's like, oh, yeah. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, so that uh, that book is available uh, exclusively on Amazon for your Kindle or paperback. Uh, my first book, The Charlatan, is available uh, for uh, exclusively on Amazon, uh, Kindle and paperback. My new short story collection called Machines and Fever Dreams will be coming out on May 5th, to 2020, Year of Our Lord. And I have a question for the three of you. John, do you like stories about drugs capable of creating shared hallucinations? Uh, only if I get to take them. Yes, you do in this. You get to infuse it actually into your frontal lobe. Sweet. Uh, a stigma valve. Uh, Brent, wait, wait, do you wait. Like that a- sounds like you just stole that from They Come in Peace, and I love it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Did you ever see I, that movie? I don't know what is They Come in Peace. No, no, that was different. That. They suck people's adrenochrome out through their forehead to make it. Oh, no, no, no. It. You're putting it in. Putting it in, <laughs> not taking it out. <laughs> So, Brett, would you like a carnival that uses twisted rituals to create human exhibits? I knew we were going to bring back ICP into the talk today. Yes, of course. (laughs) Kevin, would you like to read about authoritarians that are made of glass who hunt people for their vocal frequency crimes? Uh, Yeah. I think <laughs> well, these are just <laughs> these are just a few of the tales and machines and fever dreams. You can travel a surreal landscape of paranoia, terror, and beauty. You can immerse yourself in worlds where delusion dictates reality, science bleeds into sorcery, and the stakes are high, but the rules are deranged. Available May fifth on Amazon, Kindle, or paperback. Machines and fever dreams by JTR brown don't forget that r there was already a jt brown he's some hack that already stole my name jtr brown (laughs) he's also apparently a hockey player john what's your guy uh a senator or something no a saxophonist in seattle oh isn't there also like a a, a politician named john goforth i don't know i am looking real quick john goforth uh oh my god you're the first one that comes up Oh, I didn't expect that picture. Holy cow. I thought Seabot was sending news. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kevin, after after everything that's transpired on, on the show today, I just kind of like to do a check-in uh, with your your mental state, how things are going, how you're feeling, where you are emotionally. I have this collection of pens, <laughs> and um, I are, chew on them. Are they pens and, that you write uh, with, or pens like, you know... It says pen, like, vote for yeah. so-and-so. or pen, uh, Pens that you write with. I chew on the ends of them, and um, I've chewed the hell out of a pen. I have. I guess so. I was thinking, I was hoping you were talking about buttons. Some people call them pens. I just, uh, I'm setting this pen aside and starting on a new one. I like your hobbies. <laughs> yeah, you know, a man's got to have a hobby. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so uh, after, after this episode... 
Would you say you have uh, lost more hair on the right side of your head or left side of your head, Kevin? I don't believe I've lost any hair on any part of my head, John. I don't believe you. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe me either. But man, I gotta believe something. All right. With that said, I've been Brent. I've been JT Brown. I've been Kevin. I've been John. He's been conspiracy bot. Stay woke, meat sacks. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I'll never get over it as long as I live. That's it for another edition of Hysteria 51. John and Brent will be back next week with yet more of the unexplained, the unexplored, and the unheard of. Oh, if it's unheard of, how will they know about it? Anyway, if you want to suggest a topic, give us your thoughts, or just make fun of Conspiracy Bot, that's my favourite, join us in our Facebook discussion group, Hysteria Nation. Just log on to Facebook and search Hysteria Nation, or you can always tweet us at Hysteria51Pod. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.